Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of SWAT. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Out of Character, a podcast about sketch and character comedy. My name is Alex Lynch. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters, and generally just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. My special guest for episode eight is the writer-performer David Reed. Hello, hello. Lovely to be here, Uh, although not quite here, but lovely to be with you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Have you been doing a f- quite a lot of uh, uh, remote recordings? And You know what? I, I actually haven't been doing as many as clearly all of my colleagues have been doing. <laughs> um, I've, I, I've, I'm quite behind on all of that. Um, yeah, I've, I've done one or two, uh, but mostly as myself, to be honest. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I haven't. I feel, I feel remiss. I feel remiss. <laughs> I've not... I've not been sucking up the uh, the zero lockdown dollars that uh, that they pay. Mm. No, I've been mostly I've been mostly doing what uh, what uh, half of us have been doing, which is uh, endless childcare with no uh, with no respite. Oh so, god, uh, not a lot of time to do silly voices. Actually, no, that's a lie. There's an enormous amount of time to do silly voices. <laughs> Uh, but none of it is for an audience more than one. <laughs> I mean, I've got to, I've got to ask probably quite a deep question. But w- when we do come out of uh, lockdown and we do go back to something which resembles a normality, mm. how many new podcasts do you think there'll be? <laughs> oh wow, yeah. And how how many will be kept up? Uh, that's the thing. There's there's going to be a, uh, a fantastic number of podcasts. I would argue there already is. But it's, yeah, I mean, everyone's been going a bit stir crazy and just releasing themselves into the void. There's no, it's no bad yeah. thing, is it? I mean, I think no. it's quite positive. It's quite healthy. Yeah. It's creative. I mean, you're either, I, I think you're kind of split into two categories. You're either a podcaster or a jogger. <laughs> yes, I guess that, I guess that is us now. I always thought you either liked sport or you liked music uh, but you're right it's podcasting and jogging you're the new <laughs> the new dichotomy um i would cast myself as a podcaster having i do i have four i can never remember i think i have four i've never sort of done um recording and editing my own work before so when we went to lockdown it was sort of like well i've put off doing this for so long i may as well give it a go yes, now that i i had the exact same impulse as well i'm just like come on david you should have got your home studio set up because then you'll never have to leave the house and be earning millions. And sadly, everyone else had the exact same thoughts. Hello. So, I, so I immediately in lockdown got my um, uh, home studio set up. It's all semi-pro, mm-hmm. as they say, and I have got zero work so far. So that was that was a distraction, I think. It's the long game, though, isn't it? Is that what they say? <laughs> the long game. We can't uh, all be in the same long game. What what happens? We're not just we're waiting for all the other performers to die. That is the long game. <laughs> then finally, finally, we'll get to do a voiceover for uh, Walker's Crisps or something. 
It's, you know, it's it's an outlet, isn't it? Yeah. I haven't learnt anything doing podcasts that has then been a transferable skill to use in the live arena or for auditions or whatever, but I'm sure some people do. Like, I'm sure some people are developing their characters or whatever. Yes. I mean, that that's not... That's not something I've ever really focused on either. Like my character, because I come from originally improvisation and then sketch, my characters are so paper thin, and uh, <laughs> and I dispose of them as soon as I as soon as I've actually started working out who they are. Um, I, I don't have the same approach to, uh, as some people. I, I have incredible admiration for. People who stick with one character for like six years. Yeah, I think it's, in- it's a different art, really. Mm. Very different. Did you ever sort of try a character that was that was you and kind of had that longevity, or were you more interested in kind of do- doing several different characters and different mannerisms and voices? My characters always came from um, doing a voice or um, having a limp. Those were the two options. <laughs> you, you just walk on stage with a stupid physicality and see what voice comes out. Uh, because I came from an improvisation background, you know, there's not really time to, to craft something before you show it to somebody. You just sort of <laughs> hobble on stage <laughs> and then go, yes, my lord. And go, oh, I guess I'm being, guess I'm being that now for the next three minutes. <laughs> but I, I think the, the only character in which I've actually sort of plumbed some depths of myself uh, into it is probably uh, doing my uh, spoof interview show inside the comedian where yes. I'm not I'm not playing myself but I am sort of playing a heightened version of the more pretentious parts of myself mm. you know I find I find that character I can do again and again so there's definitely some of me in that but but also people I despise at the same time in that as well as a stand up comedian um if you could play any room on the whole of planet Earth, mm. would you take advantage of such a disgusting privilege? <laughs> yeah. I think so. I think... I think we're very good at, um, at channeling traits in people that we, we find ugly, but fear we also embody in ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that is a... That is a really interesting uh, way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, one of my favourites, you know, Steve Coogan doing Partridge. Mm. People have always said how close they are as people, but I don't, I think he would be so, he's so good at finding what's peculiar and grotesque about it because you see it in other people and then you go, I hate that. Oh, I've got a guttural reaction. Why do I hate that? Oh God, do I do that? So, oh God, <laughs> and, it, and that moment of uh, self uh, hatred is is your rehearsal. That's what that's, you've been doing it your whole life. I mean, you are of course famously uh, incredibly adept at concealing your colossal rage. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, I mean, people people have literally no idea what's going on in there. Well, I, you see, I'm very lucky, Miles, because my my inner rage always manifests as hemorrhoids, and that's very. <laughs> That's yeah. very dealable. I imagine the interview is improvised, but your questions and your kind of prompting, when you're doing your interview character, have you thought quite a lot of that through? Well, what I tend to have is I'm, I don't prep for it very well because I, I like it to remain improvised. And uh, the further I go down the route of preparation the more I'm not in the moment because then I feel like I'm getting it wrong or I'm misremembering that perfectly crafted line I wrote or whatever and it brings you out of it and that's incredibly hard to maintain that you going from script to improv to script to improv because as soon as they say something you go oh that doesn't quite fit with what I had planned to say or whatever so what I tend to have is three sides of A4 of my appallingly scrawled handwriting of just some vague questions I could ask so that uh, once we inevitably end up in a cul-de-sac of conversation I've got another tack I can go to so yeah but that's all I've got I've got you know I, I tend to do a most cursory Wikipedia research of their actual career and then go, okay, we could move on to how you started uh, on panel shows, I guess. You know, and then I sort of think of what I could say in the moment. 
But the rest of it's all improvised, you know, and, and I rely incredibly heavily on the guest to be good at this. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, we, we can't get any momentum because it's got to be a back and forth. One night, David went completely nuts in a bar and um, just turned pretty much every table in the place over and ripped the jukebox off the wall and uh, he threw it through a window and people were like, God, that guy's really angry. And um, somebody said, no, he's got an anal fissure. And, um, <laughs> and that stuck. And yeah. for, for many years, that was my stage name. <laughs> I certainly, certainly nobody minded, did they? Nobody, nobody minded. minded it. Nobody, nobody booked me, but nobody minded. <laughs> I've always had this sort of weird uh, fantasy that at its best it will be like Peter Cook and Dudley Moore at their best, you know, yeah. and they're just fannying about. But it'll yes. be me with somebody who isn't my best friend and we haven't put lots of effort into this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just spreading the net wide, hoping I'll find that one person who goes like, oh no, we can naturally do this. Right, we'll just do this from now on. I think often a voice informs the material rather than the other way around. You start speaking in a particular way yeah. and the opinions come to you. You know, what that, <laughs> how that voice would view the world, I think. Yeah. I think it's that way round. Well, certainly for me, as I say, because I started in improvisation, that's how I got into comedy from uh, joining an improv troupe at Edinburgh University um, and meeting the other Penny Dreadfuls, which is my sketch group. Oh, wow. Uh, doing that. Uh, we met for the first time in um, an improv rehearsal trying to make each other laugh, you know. And, yeah, you just find that you, you do a voice and then suddenly the rest just flows. Um, but that's that. maybe other people have completely different methods i'm sure it's just from where i fell into it all through really that's really interesting and also really convenient because i was going to ask how penny dreffles uh how you all formed so it was through imp- it was through improv so it was a team called the improverts who i believe because i remember that when i was sort of 14 15 years old i remember watching whose line is it anyway on television yes. and uh thinking that looks like the best job in the world i think because i was that age i was starting to think about jobs as being a thing you'll inevitably have to have one day because i was doing work experience or something yes and and so i saw that when that's the best job but it doesn't actually exist other than for these six people you know it doesn't actually that's not really a job and then when i went to university i found that there was a Canadian had gone to Edinburgh University in 1989 and dumped an improv troupe there. They brought their culture with them and just started oh, wow. an improv troupe. And it was still going when I went. So, you know, week one, I got involved and started um, going to their open workshops and stuff. And then I met Humphrey and Tom, who were in the in the improvisation. And then the, we formed the Penny Dreadfuls after graduating. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we did we did two rehearsals and one performance every week plus a show every day at the Fringe for four years before we did we wrote a single sketch as the Penny Dreadfuls. Wow. So we'd, we'd had an enormous amount of practice of just um, trusting each other and learning what each other does and what we find funny and all of that. So once we actually formed the Penny Dreadfuls, we found it remarkably easy because we, we'd done the preparation unknowingly. But, you know, we it was we never rehearsed in the Penny Dreadfuls because of that background. It's great because you were already up there as well. You got that Edinburgh Fringe experience. Yes. Well, that's it. We we uh, quite um, egotistically call it our Hamburg, which uh, for <laughs> fans of the Beatles will understand what I'm talking about, where we were a brand new sensation, you know, as in, where did these guys come from? Oh, my God. Mm. Um, in our fifth year at the Edinburgh Fringe, because everyone ignores students, you know. <laughs> so it was actually our fifth festival of doing comedy when we did our first festival. So, yeah, no, that was incredible. But we never rehearsed, you know. We would just read the sketches out loud and go, I like that one, let's put that one in. Mm. And then we'd just sort of muddle through and we'd find other beats and physicalities and stuff ourselves or just in prattling about but we never rehearsed um because the idea of making it less fresh seemed like it was uh, a move backwards not forward yeah well you don't, you don't want it to look like you, it's been labored over too much well i well it depends everyone's different you know but because we had that experience of just trusting each other with blocking and characterization and everything we just went 
we'll be fine. Let's be discovering it in front of the audience at the same time as they are. And that seemed to work for us for a bit. (laughs) It's not how we work now, of course, no. But it worked for the first few years, I suppose. (laughs) How did the Victorian element come into it? What that was, was Humphrey and I used to meet in pubs for lunch every now and again and talk absolute, uh, just sort of uh, daydream crap about how it would be amazing to write a film, Uh, but nobody gets to actually make films so it was just a crap conversation but in that we came up with a sort of comedy uh, Victorian spy named Aeneas Faversham whose name would eventually uh, be the name of our sketch show yes but um and so we wrote it as a stage show and so the very first Penny Dreadful show was a full narrative about this guy Aeneas Faversham and it kept uh vacillating between that and uh, random sketches populating the rest of the world. So scenes would happen and they'd never come back and then you'd go back to Aeneas's life. And after we performed that first show at the Bedlam Theatre in Edinburgh, we were like, we don't like the story as much as we like doing the sketches. So <laughs> our first show just became sketch shows. And then over several years, we worked our way back to doing narrative again. Uh, so, yeah, our third Edinburgh show was a full story again in in that same Victorian world. But, yeah, that's where it came from. It, it was originally Bond parody of all places. To, really? All places to start. Well, sort of vaguely. The joke I remember being the, the instigator of it all was we liked the idea of a Victorian Q branch from James Bond because all of their technology <laughs> would be shit. Just like, you know, this is... Uh, this is <laughs> This is a bolt action rifle. You can shoot up to uh, up to four rounds every two minutes. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> my God, uh, you know all of that stuff. Just like daft gags, uh, which you know is a very root one place to start. But it sort of spawned the rest of it, I suppose. I'm, I'm gutted. I never saw you guys live because I didn't sort of know about the sketch circuit, the sketch scene until 2014 was when I discovered. Like I was always into sketch comedy, but in terms of a circuit and knowing how many people were out there. Yeah, um, I didn't sort of know until 2014. Oh, and we were gone by then, you know, we weren't doing it anymore. I mean, Humphrey, who's the tall one, uh, he <laughs> he moved to LA and he lives out there now. So he lives in California. Oh, right. And yeah. so um, the only way we're still going as an entity is that I pitch a Penny Dreadfuls play, a new one to BBC Radio 4, and touch wood so far they've commissioned them all so we've done nine or ten i think it's ten now you've very much made a home for yourself on radio four right and he flies over to come record those in the radio theater in front of a live audience and Mm. it's nice to have an excuse to see him and then he goes home again wow yeah so we do one show a year basically um but that's always enormous fun we fall back into the old patterns you know but that's all pre-written now we don't you know we can't be fannying around with uh, with that when we've got one shot with the microphones to get this working. When you were doing the first radio series, did you all write that together as well? So yes, we had we did two series of the Brothers Faversham, which yes. was still in our Victorian world, and we all wrote that. And then we went from that to doing our first play, which was Guy Fawkes, and we all wrote that. Yeah, and then Revolution. Um, I believe it was just. Uh, me and Humph wrote that with Tom doing additional material by that point. And yeah. from then onwards, uh, we did Macbeth. No, Hero with the Wake. And I, Humph and I wrote that. And then I wrote all the others on my own. But that's mostly because um, Humph and I were a more natural partnership and always sort of wrote together. And then he went to America. Yes. So it, it was very hard to write over. You know, you, There's something about being in a room... Uh, together physically in the same room as each other which really helps play Mm. and and I think the sense of play is incredibly important for getting good comedy out and it's very hard to play over the phone yeah well it's like all the writers rooms that are happening in zoom at the moment yeah yeah yeah. I mean you can you can say funny things without a doubt but there's there's a rapport missing yeah, the physical cues, you know, micro uh, physicality that we're we're actually aware of all the time, but aren't aware we're aware of it. 
um, that it just gets destroyed by having a Zoom conversation, you know. Plus, there's that fact that everyone is drawn to look at their own face. Um, <laughs> which, last time I was in a writer's room, didn't happen. Everyone didn't have a small vanity mirror that they were staring into whilst <laughs> having conversations. But that is the that is the era we live in now. Yeah, when we come back to this, everyone's going to have to carry a mirror around with them. Just That's feel... it, just to feel comfortable. <laughs> just walking around with little mirrors, looking, gazing into their own eyes while they have their <laughs> admin conversations. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, because you're still writing them once a... Uh, like once a year it's it's about once a year because you're writing so many other things and doing other projects do do you find it quite easy like naturally to slot back into writing a penny dreadfuls script yeah i mean again this is probably just me or or rather there's no reason why everyone would work this way but when i write i i can hear the voice of the character in my head and because i've spent that long uh dicking about on stage with Humphrey and Tom I I will nearly always know who I want to play the part as I'm writing it yes so the 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 so the characters I'm writing are very much influenced by their performance styles and what they've done over the years so also I mean that's vital because uh, we get no rehearsal time on radio I mean the the the, the money's not really there for excess rehearsal so Usually we meet up for the first time since the last one yeah. at about two in the afternoon and the audience comes in at seven. Oh my God. PM, and we record it. So yeah, it really helps that I can go, yeah, this is something Humphrey can do. I know Tom will know exactly <laughs> what I'm on about with this, you know. Yeah. And Margaret Cabon Smith as well, who has um, mm. done all of them with us since the second one, since Revolution which has two Oscar nominees in it now, which I still find very weird. Oh, really? Um, it had Richard E. Grant and Sally Hawkins, both wow. of whom now have both have Oscar nominations. <laughs> and it's very weird. It's very weird because they were eminently gettable at the time. I hope that's not insulting, but they were. We're just like, yeah, they'll come along. That sounds fun, you know. That's amazing. I, re- I really enjoyed the um, Richard III one you oh, did thanks. that was the most recent one. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. No, that was enormous fun to do. And, and quite rare for us, actually, that we got to play the main parts ourselves. There's always quite a pressure to get a guest star in, you know. Yes. Just sort of give it its own flavour or whatever. But and no, no disrespect to anyone we've had in, because they've all been fantastic. But we do know how our material works better than anyone else. I don't think that's insulting to say. No, you of know, course not. You know, it's, it's our stuff. And uh, and it's been informed by who we are. So it it was nice to be able to hit the ground running and know that every single gag is going to be is not going to be lost in translation. Hello, boys. Unky Richard. <laughs> Have you brought us some presents, Unky Richard? I'm afraid not, lads. In in fact, I've got some sad news. Your old dad has gone to join the angels in heaven. I'm sure yes, you... Yes, get in! Result! Does that mean Eddie is king now? Y- yes, it does. Ooh! I feel all tingly. I'm a-glowing. Yeah, I think you are a little bit, Okay, yeah. okay, now, I will always be there to protect you. If you have any questions, anything at all, you can ask me, all right? Oh, yeah, what's a caterpillar for? Can ghosts climb trees? How deep is the sky? Can I marry little Richard? Oh, 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 good questions, lad. And it, it felt a bit more like the um, Brothers Favisham because right. of the fact that Tom Tuck was, was playing... Playing the lead, yeah, of course, because he played every every lead in the Brothers Favisham, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so no, it was nice to be sort of back to those days. Yeah. So, you know, fingers crossed, I've pitched the... Um, the 11th one so hopefully that'll happen but we'll see oh wonderful uh, it'll be it would certainly be nice to just keep doing them indefinitely i enjoy writing them definitely uh, people seem to enjoy coming to them so do you think it could still work without having an audience there that's very tricky because as i say from where we come from it it's always been that sense of play and having an audience to tell you what's working and what isn't is actually very useful yeah it's we've we've often maintained and again it's because for because of our improv background that the audience when when they're on side because a bad audience is is the worst kind of uh, uh, advice you can get at all <laughs> yeah. you know when nothing's flying because the audience yeah. just isn't um 
they're not a cohesive whole, you know. But when they're going for it, they're the best director there is. Because their laughter will tell you more of this or, no, it's starting to dip, so move on, you know, all of that. And you <laughs> and you just get it. You get it and you don't need to talk about it because often talking about comedy can be the death of comedy. Yes. You know, if, you, if you've got a tiny moment that's just not working and so you talk about it and talk about it and talk about it and then next time you perform it, the whole sketch isn't really working anymore because there's no joy left in it. You've over, well, you've overthought things, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. You've like, analysed exactly. it to the bone and then it's just oh, kind yeah. of... Actors love to analyse every single line <laughs> and it's mostly because they love to talk. It's not actually because any progress yeah. is being made. Um, so some of the best actors I've met, successful actors as well, are just like, come on, let's do it. We all know what we're doing. We're intelligent people. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's not uh, indulge in the theatre of doing what we think actors do by performing the role of an actor really getting to grips with the part. Let's just do it. Yeah. Um, and I'm very much from that school. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Justin. And I'm Lucy. And together we are the hosts of Plenty Questions. It's a very straightforward general knowledge quiz. We ask you 20 questions, one after the other, five second gap in between, and you shout the answers out. And then you tweet us to let us know how you've got on. See if you can get 20 out of 20. No one has so far, but that's because we haven't started doing it yet. Mm, But we will. Uh, And there's also going to be some fiendish brain teasers, so join us for Plenty Plenty Questions. If you had to isolate with any TV comedy character, who would it be? Oh, my God. Mm. I mean, the the entire purpose of uh, TV comedy characters is for them to be grotesque and emotionally stunted. So, <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, what what have people said before? Can I, can I get the cheat codes here? Well, twice Liz Lemon has come up. There have only been eight episodes and twice Liz Lemon has come up. I can see that, you know. She she's she likes being she likes a, a cozy lie-in, but is also uh, intelligent uh, company. I like that's a good choice. Maybe uh, maybe Ron Swanson. Ron Swanson would That'd be a be good great. guy to lock down with because if you wanted personal space, no problem with that. You yes. know, you could go weeks without seeing him, and he wouldn't mind. But he also might whittle you a canoe to go uh, to go rowing in. You know, so that'd be nice. I think I'd pick Ron Swanson. Ron Swanson, that's great. Would you grow a, a similar moustache to him to try and... Uh, would you out-moustache him? Would I out-moustache Ron Swanson? I don't think that's possible. I mean, my, my moustache is the only bit of facial hair that actually grows properly. I look like a reprobate with the rest of it. But um, no, I don't think I could. It's too, it's too glorious. I think I'd want to be the clean-shaven one of the double act. Definitely. But I would definitely indulge in his love of breakfast foods. Great. 100%. Best meal of the day. So you have been already quoted on this podcast. Have I? uh, By Richard Soames. What did he say? There was a conversation he had with you once where you said... Sketches such a great way to figure out mistakes with your friends (laughs) i have no recollection of saying that what context was that in a lot of the time it seems to be sketches a sort of 
a way people start out to find their comedy voice. And I was kind of yeah, asking of him, do you think you could, do you think you'd be able to slot back into it? Or do you think that that time is kind of not over, but and I suppose, I mean, if you, if you weren't doing the radio plays every year, would yes. you feel the Penny Dreadfuls was something you could still do? Or do you feel again that that was good for that time? Okay. Um, it's a great question. And I've thought about it a lot. And I, I don't know if I have a definitive answer, but what I feel right now is no, that would be a backward step to go back into. Because right. um, I've said this before, um, the a, a very uh, quotable David Reed line uh, coming up here, <laughs> but um, <laughs> sketch comedy only works when you value your time at zero pounds. Um, I found myself saying that in an interview, <laughs> I think, and I, I stick by it. It's like... It takes an enormous amount of free time to make a sketch group work. And you basically have to have nothing else going on. Because it also takes an enormous amount of flexibility and patience with your fellow man as they're working out their crap at the same time as you're working out yours. Yes. And so if if there's any sort of pressure put onto your time together to this has to be right or it's not worth doing, it's already dead. Yeah. Because it has to be play. It can't be work. Um, and as soon as it becomes work, it's got to become something else. Um, and I think I think that's partly why we've ended up doing what we do now, where I go away and write it, and then they arrive and we record it, because we don't have the luxury of that time anymore. Sure. And so, and you know, and... You spend, I mean, I, I did and, and every other sketch group I know did, you spend an inordinate amount of time together, not just on stage or even just rehearsing to be on stage, but the rest of the time as well. And that's all valuable time to mm. making the, the act better. Yeah. You know, because actually the thing that we're not controlling is that people have come to see um, best friends play together. And that's always been the appeal of the greatest double acts. You know, you can say how great a singular line or a singular routine is from Morecambe and Wise or uh, Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson yes. or whoever happens to be your favourites, you know, Cook and Moore or whatever. But the thing that we, we rarely describe about what we love about it is actually we love seeing a little window into how much they love each other. <laughs> Yeah, you've got that camaraderie on on right. stage and it's on that screen. Poor, it's that just magic, and it, it's you can't engineer it. No, and it's t- and it, the truth is, it's taken it's taken thousands of hours to create, and that that is partly why it works so well. And if you start to grow apart, as people who get older can do, because you know they they met each other at a time when they were perfect for each other, and then they've grown in their own lives you know which is why i think and there's nothing wrong with that but it's why i think sketch groups often have a shelf life which is yeah. why it's considered a young man's game because um or a young person's game i should say yes. because because young people have the most free time i'm sure some double acts meet in their when they're 45 and end up spending hundreds of hours together but i can't imagine it happening very often no so i think i think that's what it is i think we actually enjoy seeing people just be playful with one another in a totally effortless way mm. and certainly the best uh, comedy groups and double acts are are doing that was um television ever on the cards for the pennies <laughs> well we came along at a very odd time for that actually because we so god what would what sort of so we I, I would argue our most sort of successful Edinburgh Fringe year was probably 2008. And so <laughs> we, we, we came around um, yeah. at a time when uh, BBC Three and BBC Four had started and, you know, Sky was getting more popular and, and, and American TV was everything. And there were, there were more and more channels and the BBC was getting a bit wobbly about what they should be spending money on and, and, yeah. and new acts weren't quite as exciting to the industry as they perhaps had been 10 years before. Huh. And we were doing uh, historical comedy, uh, mm. which producers immediately go, 
that is going to cost a fortune oh, in terms God. of sets and costumes yes. and props and everything. And of course, we'd recently been watching The League of Gentlemen and gone, anything is possible. You can make something cinematic and awesome. And then the industry strongly disagreed. Um, and so we had God. sort of our opportunity, but nothing ever nothing ever got away because we always hit that, this is going to cost too much money. And sure. so when we got pushed back to go, couldn't you do something set in the the modern day, more contemporary? We were like, yeah, no, sure, I'm sure we could. And then we would sit around thinking and every idea we came up with bored us because how we'd met was doing high adventure, fantastical comic book nonsense you know yeah and so we couldn't we we never found we never found the idea that we could we could convince ourselves enough to be able to convince other people was worth making do you think money is perhaps one of the reasons sketches are really done on tv anymore 100 percent, 100 percent. because the fast show changed sketch comedy uh, uh quite a bit by making it a virtue for audiences that you see the same characters in the same spaces wearing the same costumes every single week Mm -hmm. whereas sketch uh, previously uh, was more of the tradition of Monty Python where who knows where it's going to go it's going to be exciting and anarchic and we've no idea what's going to happen next yeah and the uh the python model is phenomenally expensive because you 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 hire you get a costume and after 20 seconds you discard it into the pile and put on another one and you're constantly shooting in built sets or on location and back again and that those are the major expenses of these shows whereas if you can a sitcom three sets by and large, similar costumes, and they're mostly contemporary costumes. You're not going to suddenly have a conquistador appear. So the money goes on crew, uh, cast, and writing, and and it's a lot more manageable. Um, so yeah, without uh, an enormous amount of money sloshing around the system, uh, sketch becomes less of a horse to back. Yeah, and then you add into that, you've got the fact that now every single channel is competing for an audience. You know, before when it was just B- you could watch BBC or Channel 4 or ITV and you probably won't watch ITV if you're the kind of person who watches BBC or Channel 4. <laughs> and so they were only really competing with one other show. Yeah. You know, whereas now you're competing with not only all the other shows that are on, but with streaming services. You're competing with every show that's ever been. God, yeah. So you not only have to go, well, it's got to be better than what's on Channel 4, it's now got to be better than re-watching The American Office. But there is more choice out there, undoubtedly, for everybody. And sketch shows just cost a lot of money. Like, you still get some good ones, but they're mostly coming out of America, I think. We don't tend to have the budgets to make them. No. And I think it's a great shame, because a lot of people, you know, they cut their teeth in sketch on TV. Well, that's exactly it. The big train guys. Exactly. Look at them. I mean... Yeah, I mean, they're all now, you know, household names. Well, if people don't know their names, they've certainly seen them in everything since then. Absolutely. And I love sketch shows. I think the the anarchy of it... I mean, talking about you've got to compete with everything that's ever existed... My wife and I have just been re-watching Mr. Show of an Evening on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, we sort of miss that style of television. Where it's just like, yeah, they're, it's just very funny, very clever people dicking about. And there's something, you know, I miss that, really. But really odd to see Bob Odenkirk, who's now, like, you know, massive Netflix star of um, of Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. And he, this is him in his... Uh, you know, putting on wigs and doing squeaky voices days. But then again, it's like, look at, I don't know, look at Fazata's Olivia Coleman and Jordan Peele. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I maintain the best comedy actors, and I don't just mean uh, the best silly people. I mean, the best comedy actors are the best actors. Because if you can't do comedy, you're a far more limited performer because... Levity is an enormous part of existence. Yes. And if all you can do is serious, then you're missing you're you're lobotomized as a human being, aren't you? I mean you can't you can't you can't play the full spectrum of human existence unless you can also take the piss out of yourselves. Because people aren't always dignified. <laughs> and it takes a comedian to play it someone who loses dignity in a moment. Well, it's, it's rather like with um, 
SNL when they get a serious actor on and people kind of go, oh, they're they're funny or they, they're taking the piss out of themselves. Oh, yeah, like some of them are sublime at it. Like Tom Hanks, I love whenever he's on SNL, you know. Yeah. When you see a great actor who's normally just played serious, important roles uh, make a fool of themselves, you're thrilled, aren't you? Yeah. Like, it feels like Christmas. That is the feeling of Christmas to me. Absolutely. (laughs) Daniel Craig, there's another one. Like, Daniel Craig doing comedy, he's brilliant at it. It's funny, that was just what I I was thinking. Daniel Craig, when you first see him being an idiot, that was a real kind of, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And he's really good at it. He put one toe in being an idiot in uh, Knives Out by doing a silly voice uh, and clearly was having the time of his life. But um, yeah. <laughs> what sort of TV and film comedies inspired you? Or like when you were sort of growing up, what was the kind of... Oh, I consumed everything. But I, I grew up in the era of VHS. So um, if I'm perfectly honest, it was whatever my dad had recorded off telly to start yeah. with. So it was yeah. endless repetitions of Monty Python, of Blackadder, of Alexis Sale's stuff. Yes. Television-wise, I watched a lot of Red Dwarf. Um, I was a big sci-fi fan growing up, so it was so oh, right. exhilarating that you got... Well, I was a massive Star Wars fan. Yes. And, then, you know, and so having all of these nerdy things lampooned by comedians was incredibly satisfying. Um. It felt like a world I was in on, you know. Uh, nice. But everything, really. I mean, and then, you know, Vic and Bob, massive fans of Vic and Bob. Um, Bottom and the Young Ones, I absolutely adored and would watch them again and again and again. Um, Frasier is an uh, all-time favourite oh, for me. I think me too. it does no wrong, including all of the appalling English accents all the way through. Somehow it manages to be... So charming, you don't even care that nobody in the show can do an English accent. You've got Richard E. Grant and Robbie Coltrane. Yeah. And then whoever the other guy is playing. Um, An American actor, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All doing different, (laughs) appallingly bad English accents. When two of them are from the British Isles, but one's Scottish and the other is humongo posh. So it's, yeah, oh, it's wonderful, but a very hard watch <laughs> <laughs> but i mean in, in 11 seasons it's not bad going is it oh no, no no it's incredible one of the all-time greats <laughs> how did you find uh when you were doing your own character stuff when you um first moved into your solo show okay well i did that for one year um right uh, just because i wanted to try it i was like I think if I'm going to do... I was at that point in my life where I was like, if, I think if I'm going to continue doing this as a career, I need to know these shows work because I can do it rather yeah. than there's two funny guys and their friend on stage. And so I did it. I, I was like, uh, right, I, I should do this. And so, you know, booked it and wrote a sort of show and did it. And it was like, oh yeah, I, I can do it. Great. Uh, and then never went back. <laughs> yeah, that was, that so, was enough. It was kind of like that was enough. Done that apparently, now. yeah. No, it's in, it's not terrifying. Turns out I I have some ability at this and can do it. Okay, now what? Um, but no. So I did only one year. I did I did um, a show called Shamble House. Uh, that was my last Edinburgh. Wow. Well, as a as a as a writer performer doing a doing a show, that was my last Edinburgh. Yeah. I, I it wasn't supposed to be a, a retirement lap, but um, I always told myself after that that I was going to Edinburgh out of sort of habit rather than design, and I was getting into that point where no, I need to box clever here rather than I'm um, you know, and. I decided to go back only when I came up with the idea that I was moved to bring to an audience, you know. Yeah. And that has yet to happen. Uh, so um, <laughs> it's, uh, well, I, no, it hasn't yet to happen. I've, I've come up with ideas that I wanted to bring to people in other ways. And Edinburgh hasn't been, you know, the, the channel for it. But, you know, never say never, it could happen. <laughs> We are now on to the final section of the podcast. Yes. It's called Chain of Character. Got you. I'm looking forward to this. Well, this has been gifted to you by my previous guest, which was John Henry Fall, a.k.a. The Story Beast. Lovely. Your character's name is Susan Turpentine. <laughs> okay, good. Susan Turpentine. Good. Um, in the Penny Dreadfuls, every single woman was called Susan. As a sort of... Oh, really? Nod, yeah, in the live shows, as a nod to the fact <laughs> that we we couldn't really play 
sophisticated, in-depth women, so they may as well all have the same name. <laughs> um, so, yes, Susan Turpentine, very much in my wheelhouse. Um, I think Susan Turpentine lives in a houseboat, mm-hmm. is something of a, a wayward soul, sociable, but needs her own personal space. I think her houseboat uh, is uh, moored on the Serpentine, uh, so she's Susan Turpentine of the Serpentine. Uh, she thinks she has a cat uh, that changes colour, uh, when actual fact uh, there are three cats that rotate, uh, which one is living on her boat. On <laughs> so where does she moor? Well, she, she moors uh, wherever ever her heart takes her, I think. Um, she's quite a... She's quite a um, a gentle soul, really, who's happy to uh, pitch up, set fire to a tree, and then uh, roast marshmallows on it. And then she's gone before the rosas show up. Uh, she's, she's, at, she's at home uh, most under the stars, really. Uh, she sleeps on top of the boat, never inside, and, uh, and risks freezing to death every single night. It's very cold. Very cold. But it's the life she's chosen. Yes. Yes, 100%. Susan Turpentine of the Serpentine. Where is the boat taking her? In her latest voyage. Uh, it's always taking her away from her previous life. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's wherever it's really going. She's really running away from her past, mm-hmm. um, which is why she needs so much time to reflect on... Uh, um, when actual fact, she's not reflecting. She's just um, deluding herself, mostly, about the terrible crime she committed. Uh, but if you, if you ever manage to bend Susan's ear, she will not tell you about the terrible crime. Uh, not a chance the terrible crime will ever come up. One crime or several crimes? She won't tell you. It's <laughs> referred to by herself and the the press and the FBI as the terrible crime. Well, we've we've already seen her setting fire to trees, so I'm going to assume it's uh, it's arson related. No, well, well, you can assume all you like about Susan. Um, that's uh, that's your that's your. Uh, that's your privilege, you see, because you'll meet Susan once. She'll set fire to a tree, <laughs> talk to you about a cat, and then she'll be gone into the night, um, shivering away till the morn, uh, never to be seen in your area again. She never returns to the same place twice. Is she quite a nocturnal being? Oh, yes, 100%. Has, hasn't been uh, awake in the day uh, since uh, the terrible crime, uh, <laughs> which was a day, day-based crime. Um, but, so she's now, she's now only around at night. Partly uh, to evade the police, because a lot of them are asleep, uh, but also also partly to uh, commune with nature a bit more. She's nearly always being swarmed by bats. By bats? Bats, wherever she is. Mm. Um, it's something to do with the musk of her clothing. It, it attracts pipistrales uh, in particular. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it's the life she's chosen and she's happy with it. She doesn't have a smartphone or a map. Right. So it's just... She's going with the current. Oh, going with the current, sometimes. Sometimes she puts the engine on. <laughs> um, but yes, where, wherever her wow. heart takes her, really. It tends to take her round in circles. She <laughs> believes she's never been to the same place twice. But really, it's just because last time she was there, she burnt down a tree. No one wants to speak to her again. <laughs> so it's, it's crimes in the day and nature at night. Yes, mostly bats and mostly the occasional cats. <laughs> bats and cats. Bats and cats. Susan Turpentine of the Serpentine with bats and cats. That's it. <laughs> um, it's uh, yes. I think uh, I'm not going to play her, though. I think I think it's time to let a young actress play play Susan Serpentine. <laughs> but I'm going to do all the development work and yes. decide everything she thinks and says, and will take no input from the actress whatsoever. <laughs> and which actress do you figure you will have? You will take no input from. I would like Susan to be played uh, by uh, Vicky Pepperdine, I think. Mm. She's a very good actress. She uh, is. But I shan't be listening to her. I shall <laughs> just hand her a script and she'll have to take that. Uh, get on our houseboat. It's going to be all filmed on um, uh, just with a, a camcorder. Mm. Uh, she'll be alone for the duration of the shoot, uh, just filming it all herself. Um, and she will have to sleep on the top of the boat at night as well <laughs> for the whole thing. Oh, so it's uh, it's very much in character... All time found footage. Yeah, it's found footage. Right, is what this project is going to be because we will. She will have to dispose of the camera, and then it will have to be found by the production team. <laughs> um, we've been very strict about this, um, and she will never be seen again. That is important for the artistic piece to really resonate. Susan yes. disappears at the end of her story, and so it's very important. Vicky Pepperdine disappears at the end. Of her story <laughs> well. Oh wow, that is a uh, that is quite a tale. No, oh, thank you. It's very free. As is Susan on her boat. Right. She's a, she's a free lady. 
uh, really. She's got no she's got no uh, troubles apart from the terrible crime, uh, and also where she's going to get any food or fuel mm. or water from. You know, usual things. You, the usual plots of of sitcoms. <laughs> yeah. Where am I going to get some water? That's usually the plot, isn't it? How is she surviving? Who knows? Who can say? Oh. I mean, we'll find out, I guess. But I'm. She's, you know, it's mostly petty theft. I think. <laughs> For a free-roaming uh, canal boat dweller, is she training the animals to do her bidding? <laughs> well, they keep forgetting because, of course, it's actually three distinctly different cats um, that she thinks change colour. So yeah, she's trying to train them, but it's taking almost three times as long as it's taken to train any other animal. It's brilliant. I mean, I well, I do and don't want to be on the boat with uh, with Susan. Uh, so oh, good. That is Susan Turpentine. Wonderful. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Can you please reveal the name of your character you are going to give our next guest? The name of the character that they are going to be uh, embodying is Chris Ps. <laughs> I'll say that again. Yes. Chris Ps. <laughs> it, it's spelt how it sounds. P-P-S-S. Yes. P-S-S? The P is not silent. <laughs> Wow. So, who is Crisps? We shall find out in the next episode of Out of Character. In the meantime, thank you so much for being my guest for this episode, David Reed. My absolute pleasure. My name's Jason Fleming. The More Than My Past podcast will see me talking to a wide range of inspiring people. People who have confronted and overcome addiction or imprisonment or both and turned their lives around. I did mad things that was hurting myself and hurting other people. Everybody grows up in a house called normal. Heroin addiction and chaos was my normal. Some people don't understand the word moderation and uh, I was definitely one of those people. The More Than My Past podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.